0: I'm going to make a quick announcement. Um, in the pamphlets that you received outside, there's a comment card. On that comment card, uh, if you have any other questions that aren't going to be answered through the questions that we have already set, you can write your question or comment. Um, and ushers will come around uh, around the 10th question, take those, and then we'll um, do like a questions and answers, a little preguntas y repuestas section at the end. Um, but to get back, now that we have everyone back, um, let's go ahead and start off with question number six, which reads, what is the purpose of ICE? What power does ICE have in California? And I'm going to start over with Jose. No?
1: Oh, my bad.
0: I cut off Eddie.
2: ¿Cuál es el propósito de ICE? ¿Cuál es el propósito de ICE? Cuánto poder tiene Ais dentro de California y puede Ais identificarse como un oficial de la policía.
0: Are we starting off with Alex? Is that what we're doing?
1: Sure, why not? Alex, you're up. <laughs> we're Mixing it up, Keep it interesting.
3: Is it on? Okay. <laughs> um. So, what is the purpose of ICE? Okay, so, so ICE, literally what it stands for is the Immigration Customs Enforcement. <clears throat> and, um, as, as I know it, their, their job is to really <clears throat> work towards in, in enforcing immigration policy and laws, um, in this country. Um, and what power does it have in California? Well, you know, they, they have a lot of power. They're able to go <clears throat> into communities, um, and and if if there's folks there who are undocumented, they can work they can work towards deporting them. Um, <clears throat> now there's a lot involved, in, and I'm definitely not an expert in ISO, so, so um, I can't get into the finer details. But I do know that they are not police officers, um, or they can't identify themselves as police, as, as I as I as I've been informed that <clears throat> they. They can. They do work with the police when the police have have chosen to work with them, right? So we talk about sanctuary cities. Um, we're really. Are we working closely with the, with with ICE um, um, officers? With ICE, and if if so, you know, and often when when the sanctuary cities say that they're sanctuary, that they choose not to um, refer. People who've been um, maybe picked up or are in trouble over to, to ICE to be deported. Now, <laughs> of course, I think that's case by case. I, I don't know all the the rules and the regulations around how that works and um, and how um, the policies are. Um, but there's a real. I think for me, what's what's more, what's really important is that there's a real fear, right? That ICE is in our community. Um, that ICE is is um, in Napa or pulling over people. Now, I want to just say that 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 we know of, um, and maybe the mayor might be able to speak more to this, um, <clears throat> but that they are not pulling over cars and deporting, right, um, are, are undocumented. They are not staging themselves up. <clears throat> and, like, there was a story that there was a person who was pulled over after dropping off somebody from the school. That that did occur, but there was a particular reason, I believe, behind that. So um, for ICE to go after somebody, there has to be something already um, some kind of action already occurring, <clears throat> so they can't just stop a in person and then ask, you know, are you are you um, document or not, and then and then work towards um, towards deporting them. So, um, um, so I think the but the fear is or, or the idea is that they're out there doing that, that they're in Napa, that they're at our schools, and <clears throat> you know I I know that they they are out there, but they are not pulling people over, they are not working with our schools. Um, they're not working with Napoli College, and we will not work with them. <clears throat> we've, we've agreed that we will not turn over any of our students to, to ICE. Um, <coughs> so so um, I think what's more important is that we address that fear, that concern that our community has, and I think this, that we need to be clear that, that ICE does have a lot of influence and power. However, they are not actively um, doing the work here on this campus and I, for, that, I, that I know of, not in the larger community either.
4: Yeah, so uh, panel member uh, elaborated on what ICE is, you know, very well. And, you know, so far we know in Napa uh, County, and this is from uh, the uh, immigration I- I- uh, session forum that uh, Congressman Thompson had here at the other theater just last week, um, but the sheriff our county sheriff said that there have been 10 people who have been picked up thus far. Um, throughout the county, uh, and, uh, sorry, Alex said, you know, it is, uh, mainly targeted, um, individuals. Now, um, I do have with me, you know, these so called, uh, red cards, um, where it provides you the information, uh, you know, your, your rights. Um, so, you know, if ICE does come to your house, for example, and ask for, uh, so and so, you know, you have the right to show them this card. You have the right to let them know that you know they have, must have uh an, uh warrant by signed by a judge. Now they won't be nice, uh, and I know that in our communities, at least in Calistoga, working in the up alley communities, uh, you know, uh, the, this family, you know, kind of was in a way tricked to come out. One, by saying they are police, not identifying themselves as ICE, so always make sure uh, that, you know, is stopped by ICE uh, which hasn't happened that we know of, but if it's targeted you know, that you ask what kind of police they are. Is it local police? uh, Napa police? Or is it ICE police? Um, You know, and another uh, thing that happened was that you know, they, they said, uh, something happened to your car. Um, so the person that came out and, you know, that was, that was immediate, uh, you know, um, they didn't ask, the, the person being arrested didn't ask for a, uh, warrant, you know, signed by a judge or anything. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what's important to know your rights. Um, I have some of these red cards that, uh, at the end of the forum, I'd be more than glad to give out to some of y'all.
1: Yeah, to my understanding of their powers, as has been already described um, by Alex and Ricky, that's pretty much what it boils down to. I think Ricky's last point is a really, really important one, and it's that we need to remember that ICE does not have direct powers of arrest. They can't force entry. They can't serve a warrant. What they can do is they can have the police there to serve the warrant, and police can force entry. So, uh, my wife, uh, as I mentioned earlier, she's uh, the, the counsel for Puente, and she went to a conference in LA where they had these exact same kind of discussions. And the advice that they gave was, just don't open the door. When they show up, unless they are showing you a badge for being a city police officer or an actual sheriff, you don't even open the door. Just ignore them. They'll be loud, they'll bang, they'll be hostile. It doesn't matter. They cannot come in unless you open the door and invite them in or you step outside. Uh, I know that the, the specific policy is that they do have powers of arrest, but it's for offenses committed in their presence and the offense must occur during the course of duties related to enforcement of immigration laws. In other words, if they are actively enforcing a warrant against someone and you are there with them, then they can question you. But again, you fall into the if they stop your car and they say a mice, don't roll down the window, don't open the door. You don't have to engage with them. Um, and I I would like to very specifically say to, to Mayor Techwell that I am extremely happy that as a city, as a school As institutions of our community our number one priority is the safety of the members of our community and that we are saying no you can't come and ask us for information I would like to add also that here at the college one of my primary responsibilities is our data okay all of our information about who you are your personal records your address your phone number all those kinds of things nobody gets at that data unless they go through me and my unit and I can tell you without question nobody is getting that information from me without a federal warrant good
5: job So uh, ICE is um, all over the country, and as mayors, we have an organization, U.S. mayor's organization, and they asked this week um, to have a conversation with ICE in Washington, D.C., and they did that yesterday, and there were several things that they wanted to get on the record, and one of those was um, talking to them about a sanctuary city, and what it means and what it means to be um, in violation of the U.S. Code 1373, uh, which is an act that says um, states and local governments can enact laws or policies that limit communication. So we don't have laws or policies unless you've done that. And they said, you know, really there's very few cities within the United States that really have that, fall under that national way of defining what sanctuary cities are. So it's sort of interesting that we're going to get out there with more clarifying language. also, um, we've, we've talked about if you have a warrant, the police will say, or the jail will say, if you have a warrant um, issued by a judge, um, then we will we will hold the, the 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 person or or let you know. The argument in Washington D.C. is, can ICE issue a warrant? on their own or does it need to come from a judge or law enforcement? And that's one that cities feel you need the, the judge, law, the judge in order to issue that warrant. Um, the federal government is saying, well, we think ICE has the ability to issue their own warrant. So that is one that the cities are going to fight and fight hard for to be sure that it is a, a court issued warrant, um, that triggers that. And, um, Finally, there was um, uh, clarification about the they do have a policy against enforcement, and I think it's schools, hospitals, churches, synagogues, mosques, funerals, weddings, and at the site of public de- demonstrations such as a march, rally, or parade. And so they got some clarification there on a national level, and I think that's
0: helpful. Okay, we're on uh, question number 7. How do you suggest that people discuss immigration policy in the most constructive way possible?
2: La siguiente pregunta es, ¿cómo sugiere que la gente discuta la política de inmigración de la manera más constructiva posible?
4: All right, I'll start at this time here. Um you know I think when we talk about immigration it, it's it's hard not to get into that anger that sentiment, but we do have to acknowledge that those are our feelings uh, I think that that is very important and uh, we need to take that into consideration, especially when a group of people are being labeled a uh, group of people are being dehumanized um, and when we start uh, uh, taking rights and taking, um, you know, basic human rights such as family and separating families, it, it, it's hard not to get into that emotion. Um, but, you know, as I just wanted, do wanted to say, uh, you know, that this quote from which many of y'all might know, um, and is darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Martin Luther King. And I think that's the best way to address uh, uh, not only having a discussion, but putting that into practice and policy as well.
1: Um, During the break, I was actually having this this, uh, very similar conversation with Craig Alamo, uh, who also works with us here on campus. Um, I think when you are having these discussions in order for them to be constructive the very first thing that you need to remember is that these these folks that you're talking with as pissed off and ugly as they might seem to you and as inhuman as their comments might seem at that time they are coming from a place where they have a perspective they have an opinion and clearly it is a very strongly held opinion The single most effective way to combat those kinds of moments is to know the facts. You, from your perspective, you're also going to more than likely be very emotional and upset, particularly if you are someone for whom these issues touch really close to home. My grandfather was an undocumented immigrant to this country. After him, four of us within his immediate children have served in the military. Second generation, which is me, three of us have served in this nation's military. So we are very deeply committed to the ideals of what this country can be. So much so that we were willing to serve in the armed forces. When we hear these arguments, from our perspective, I I can only speak from mine, and somebody tries to dehumanize my experience and devalue the contribution that my grandfather brought to this country, it is extremely upsetting. But by knowing the facts, stepping back and saying, I understand that you're upset, can you tell me why it is that you're upset? That starts the communication. Now, you might get the initial comment of, well, you know, those people, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, wh- who are those people? Well, you know, they're all the... Slow the conversation down and have them highlight the very specific things that are a problem. Uh, again, in my conversation with Craig, I had someone who had voiced their distaste for one of the politicians who was vying for president in our last election. And I said, exactly what is it about her that makes you so upset? I I see that it makes you upset, but what is it specifically? Well, it's the policies that she's believed. Okay, which policies specifically? And by slowing that conversation down, focusing on facts, asking them what they actually thought and why they thought it, we reached a point where he said, well, I guess... I guess maybe it's not really solid things, it's just kind of a feeling. And I said, well, you know, feelings are pretty dangerous thing to base your political decisions on because that results in laws and policies that affect people. And when he had that moment to slow down and reflect, it made a difference. And now those conversations about how horrible she was, they didn't happen anymore because he realized, honestly, they were coming from the wrong place. So I think that perspective of genuine, honest communication really listening to them but asking them to substantiate what they're saying with the facts and evidence make a huge difference. It, it turns an emotional conversation into an actual communication process and that's how we humanize it because they stop seeing them as labels, as tags, as rhetoric and they start seeing their words as something that is impacting another human being.
5: I think you did a great job on that. Um, it's um, it, it's 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 tough, and when I get in a conversation with somebody about immigration policy, I want to talk to them about the individuals i want to talk about the stories of people that are affected um everybody not everybody got here the same way um and some were brought here as, as young children i can remember last year um hearing about somebody who was like 17 18 19 years old and how long it took them to get their citizenship and you know how how difficult it is and how much they um are working with us and working together um So, uh, uh, you know, when people want to sometimes even positively talk to me about policy, you know, there's only, you know, we, we probably don't have a very supportive, um, uh, administration in Washington, but there's so much we can do locally, um, in order to provide, um, comfort and support for those that are going through the scary, difficult time that, Um, I'd like to focus on the nonprofits and the folks that are out there doing good work. And if somebody is feeling um, frustrated by the policy um, and wants to see the policy changed, um, we can work on that. But what we can do right now is to provide support for those people that are afraid and unsure and need um, extra hands out there showing them they belong and are part of the community.
3: So I think this question is, is really important as to who we ask about, right, these conversations. So if you go into my community, you talk to my family around this, it's a much different conversation, right, than perhaps what we're having here today. So I think it's really important just to just kind of also know your environment, right, know who you're talking to, know what <laughs> maybe history they might have with it or ideas it might bring. And that, that will influence how you engage and talk with that person because it can be – in the space where I'm with my mom and my tias, my aunts, my cousins, and we're having a conversation about immigration, it's coming more from a place of hope. Right, this place of well, you know, hopefully, as as a community, we can come together, um, support each other, learn about the services and whatnot. Now, if I go into a different space, there, there might be some 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 critique of of immigration, or it might be um, a, a different conversation altogether. So, really knowing your environment, knowing where you're at. But <coughs> one of the things I think is super important is that um, we we like I want to just echo what Jose said. We really need, need to know our facts. Right? It's hard to argue with facts. If, if you are providing data and information um, that's relevant and accurate, then, then that's very hard to push back on that. And then at the same time, humanize, right? Talk about the personal stories. I think a combination of, of that's really, really important. One of the things is really use your active listening skills when, when having a, a, a tough conversation, perhaps, around um, immigration. Um, And try not to demonize, right? I think we can go to a place of you don't agree with my ideas. You agree with these other ideas. You must be a bad person. That's not necessarily true, right? Um, And I think we jump to that sometimes. But this is an opportunity for for us to learn together as community, right, and to build bridges with with perhaps folks that we think don't want to hear the message or or hear our our take on it. Um, (coughs) So so it's hard not to, to let your emotions... Um, come in. And, and I'm not going to tell you to not use your emotions because we're emotional people. We're human. We're going to respond. But also recognize who you can maybe, if you want to have discussions and, and maybe influence them to think about differently, is who you engage with. Now, are they open to, to listening, right? If, if not, if, it's, if it turns into an ideological battle back and forth, it's kind of almost maybe time to move on to somebody else. And who can you Talk with in a, in a more constructive way, and knowing when that's going to happen, when it's not going to happen, um, it's very difficult. Being patient, right, um, and, and knowing you to, to try to keep your cool if it starts getting to you know deep inside, um, it's tough to do. But I know that we can do it. Um, but this is going to challenge us. Going to challenge us to really, really work hard, um, just as people and how we communicate around these tough issues. But I think it's possible.
0: Thank you. Uh, the next question, number eight. It's noting the recent spike in racial tension. How do we bridge the perceived divide in our schools in the community?
2: La siguiente pregunta es señalando el reciente aumento de la tensión racial. ¿Cómo podemos unir la percepción de la división en nuestras escuelas y comunidades?
1: Oh, yeah. This is such a challenging question because this is one of those that is at the heart of how we communicate. This very populist opinion that the last election really rode on. I guess that's the way I would say it, right? And it was a populist movement. It was people bringing this forward. And it was a candidate acting as a lightning rod for some of the very ugly things that we want to say. Um, When we had our previous president for two terms, one of the conversations I recall having with my wife was that now we have to be ready for it to get worse before it gets better. Because the folks who are going to resent the fact that we went in that direction at all are now going to dig their heels in. Because the thinking from that perspective, it's, it, it's a failure in logic. There's that classic slippery slope argument, right? Well, if you let this happen, well then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And it feeds itself emotionally. It turns into this driving circle. So knowing that it was going to get worse before it got better, particularly for this election, It was really important for me to focus upon the conversations where, again, we could dig into the the core reasons, understand the core reasons, and then have sensible discussion about it. The question addresses, well, the question asks about children, and that's really where I notice is the greatest risk, because my daughter is in uh, uh, eighth grade now. So all this happened in a time frame where she is engaging with peers who are now starting to become politically aware, right? Prior to that, kids just see the world happening around them and they respond and react to the influences of the parents around them. They model. They're fantastic at it, better than we ever realize. Well, now the political discussion started happening and she was relating to us her frustrations, her concern, her fears because friends that she's made and folks that she's known are showing up And because that is the political rhetoric in their homes, she's now hearing things that are very disconcerting and from the teachings that she's gotten from myself and my wife are what she knows to be ugly. So now she's questioning, are these now ugly, hateful people? Are these bad people? And that was where we had to take that focus off of the action, right? And pull it to the intent and remind her that, well your peers might not fully understand what they're saying. They're modeling things because they've been told that's the right thing to say or think, but they might not know why. So we would then arm her with information as we talked about and reasoning. Here is one possible reason why parents could have this idea or this opinion. And by feeding her that information she would start coming home and saying, I had discussion, not We argued, not somebody yelled and every I was really upset and bothered by it. She started problem solving through the issue. And I feel like the kids that she was talking about, where she was having some of this concern and conflict, when we would engage with those kids, we would see and hear slightly different conversation than maybe what we'd heard the past week. So... Yes, the the racial tension has spiked. Yes, it is documented that anti-Semitism is at an all-time high now. Yes, it is documented that kids are saying things that we effectively say were unconstitutional for our governments to do, and they're being espoused. But what's happening is that we're now having to confront that ugliness. We're having to deal with the getting worse before it gets better. Um, So it's disheartening to see it happening, but it is nice to see that the children that are engaging in it they are amenable to change. They are hearing what we say. And I think that's the critical piece. If we firmly believe that that we oppose that ideal, that we should marginalize people, that we should separate them, that we should categorize them and label them in ways that dehumanizes them, we model that behavior for our kids, we model that behavior to the other kids around us and around their parents. And... We become part of that engine of change so that that conversation keeps growing and evolving, but in that positive sense. And we're not afraid to tackle that ugly, worse before it gets better situation.
5: So, um,. I think there was. uh, You certainly, if you saw Facebook or any of the social media, there was a a rash of incidents that seemed to happen right after the election and had people um, really concerned. And I I know if we saw something on Facebook, we would um, work with the police department to be sure they were investigating it because that's, that's not okay in NAPA. And and when that, that first spike hit, I was really concerned about uh, the community. And then uh, some of the good stuff happened. Uh, the Women's March came to be um, about positive things and about our community. And they thought they might get 200, 300 people, and they had like 3,000 people. And although there was a couple instances with the march, for the most part, it was... Uh, happy, positive, connecting people that really showed Napa's Napa's about Nappins, and we're all Nappins, and let's get together and reaffirm that. Um, about a month after that there was a, a, another immigration march and they came to City Hall and again um, the, the feeling of connectivity and one of the things we did was you know they would come to City Hall and the mayor would say a few words and then they would march on and uh, Senator Bill Dodd and I were there and we went you know let's say a few words and then let's go march with them and be with them and I think that's that's more important to be with people than to talk to people I think your actions are um, are more important and so I think that I'm very proud of some of those actions in our community that show that that's just not okay here and we're going to come together and and model that
3: um, for me as a, as a, as a father of, of three beautiful kids um, and, and as, as a community member I think it's really important that we respond to any kind of incident where there's hate involved in our schools, in our community. Um, and that our, our, our schools, our teachers, regardless of what that might be, right, attend to that issue um, right away. Because right? this is not tolerated in our schools in our different spaces. Um, so so that's really important that we don't tiptoe around these issues, or we fear not to bring these issues up in classrooms, because I'll tell you what, our students are talking about it. right? So let's have conversation and discussion about it in a humanizing way, in a, in a, in a way where we can hear each other out, right? And, and our little ones are talking about it, right? They're impacted by it. Um, so let's not move away from not wanting to talk about it or, or not to respond to it. We need to respond to that right away, right? And, and have discussion with, with our kids. Our, our teachers need to be able to go there and, and talk about these things. Um, and, and I believe that this space, you know, um, I wish we had more more folks here, but this is this is an example of what we need to be doing. We need to have dialogue. We need to have conversation. We need to talk with each other around these real issues that are facing our community members, right? Um, and and I agree. When whenever we've hit some some low moments, um, perhaps around anger or hate um, or, or fear, um, the community responds accordingly in a resilient way. Right, Um, I was at that march, and it was a beautiful thing to see all different types of groups of people come together to support, um, be in in solidarity with each other in a time that we thought was pretty tough right after the election. Um, And it's the first time, because I've been in different marches, I've walked with different people, that I looked around, and it didn't really matter what your background was. We were there in solidarity together. Right? And I haven't seen that in a long time in this community. Right? We've we've marched for for immigration, we've marched for different things, but usually when I look around, if I'm in a march, it's people who look like me. So this is the first time I've seen people who didn't look like me walk in solidarity. And that was a beautiful moment. My kids were with me. My family was with with, with me. Um, And I think that that's an example of of in these tough times, in these dark moments, um, we'll rise up above that. And I have a lot of hope that that, um, we will continue to do so.
4: Yeah, so it's been a you know difficult uh, moment these last few months, um, and you know, uh, I just want to provide you know a few stories that have happened around the community. You know, there's been talk, uh, you know, if even little kids. I remember after the election um, in the schools that uh, you know they were talked about you know taking their life away uh, because they were. You know, they're fearful of what could happen to their families. They didn't want to go through that uh, here in Napa. Uh, you know, in other instances, in our communities as well, where uh, this undocumented parent, um, you know, he lost his little girl uh, around an apartment complex, couldn't find her. Um, she was actually at another uh, apartment playing with a friend. But this parent would it call the local police because of that fear that he might get deported uh, so a neighbor was the one who actually called the police but there, again there's that fear um, and another instance from one of our youth programs uh, this girl we had just come back from uh, you know, our youth program had just come back from a field trip and uh, you know uh, uh, their parent hadn't picked them up just yet And she was wondering, okay, you know, my mom's usually here on time. What's going on? Uh, The mother uh, was just running a little bit late, but she thought that ICE had picked her up already. Um, You know, so this is the kind of fear that is uh, out there in the community. But just like the rest of um, the panel members up here have said, you know, we need to come together. We need to, uh, you know, continue doing things like this. Uh, provide opportunities to NVC students, uh, but also to larger Napa area, um, so they could hear, so we could have a dialogue, and so we could understand one another. Uh, You know, now we've talked about Know Your Rights and all these other things, uh, but something that we've seen as well, um, because of what has been happening, is uh, an increase in mental health uh, so mental health is also playing a big part into this where a lot of our county therapists are going out, talking to school children, uh, and addressing these issues. Um, so, you know, again, it's providing know-your-rights information. Mental health, I think, is key, especially during these times. And, you know, we'll see if it gets any worse. Um, uh, but, you know, providing that support Uh, to our children, um, and that training to the parents as well. That way they know how to talk, dialogue, and have these conversations with their children.
0: Thank you. Next question is number nine, I believe. How can we create a safer environment for immigrants, especially children, free from shame about their culture, religion, and roots?
2: La pregunta es... Cómo podemos crear un ambiente más seguro para los inmigrantes libres de la vergüenza acerca de su cultura, religión y raíces, especialmente los niños.
5: So I think I'm first. Um, so, so right after the election, when there was, I think, the most fear in the community. Um, the police chief and I were trying to figure out how we could communicate with the community that nothing had changed in Napa, that we were the same people here we had been before, and would continue to be the same people. And so we had a conversation with Father Mora of Saint John the Baptist Catholic Church, and he said, um, "I'd like for you to come to the to the the masses, the masses that were going to be in Spanish, and there would be three of them." And he said, I'd like to introduce you to the children, and I'd like for them to hear from you that Napa is still the same place it was before the election. And so, and to hear from the police chief that he doesn't care about your immigration status, but he wants you to be sure that you're not doing violent crimes, you're not doing drugs, and you're not in a gang. And I think that was enough a message for the parents to be sure that those were things that could put your, your your yourself in jeopardy. And so as we went through this and afterwards, um, Father Mora had us walk out with him. And as people left the church, they, they greeted us. They hugged us. Little kids wanted their pictures taken. Um, I think that was a real positive thing um, for a, a population and for students that were feeling, um, you know, not sure of the change. Um, and then uh, about a month ago, the mayors, all the mayor in Napa County, um, got together. Um, Alfredo Paredes, Supervisor Paredes, sort of spearheaded us, and we said we want to give a statement to 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 everybody in the community. And um, so we created this proclamation, which probably t- took two months to get the words on paper that all of us could agree on and felt like it said the right thing. Um, But it says, whereas the building of a welcoming community is fundamental to a vibrant and inclusive Napa County, we want to assure immigrants, refugees, and other newcomers opportunities for empowerment, civic engagement, safety, and freedom from discrimination, oppression, and violence. So these these are words that we've put together that we want to be sure get out to the immigrant um, population. Whereas a relationship of trust between California's immigrant res- residents and our local agencies, including law enforcement and schools, is essential to effective e- execution of basic local functions. So we want them to know we want to connect. And whereas ensuring the health and well-being and civil rights of all people – regardless of their immigration status, through a dynamic and responsive process that respects the community's diversity is a shared responsibility of Napa County leadership. So I think we've taken some steps to put words together. Again, if you've heard me today, it's actions that really speak louder than words.
3: Um, I think it's really important that, as, as you just heard, that, that the community respond, right? That the leadership responds. Um, that that there is there is response from our schools, response from the college around we're we're aware of this issue and we assure you that there's there's safety in our community which which is happening here in Napa. So that that's that's really important, right? I think there's a there's fear or fear is caused by not by the unknown, right? When you don't know. You you're not sure, right? So the more information we can give out to our folks, to the community members, um, I think the better it can be for them, right? Knowing your rights, if if immigration or ICE does show up, what you need to do. These are tough conversations to have, but they're real conversations. Um, in counseling, we say... You have to have a safety plan if something comes up or, or you have to you have to remove yourself from a situation. what do you do right, um, and what steps will you take so this is called a safety plan it 's the same thing right with with immigration that if you if something does happen, what does your family do? Who do they call where do your kids go? These are important conversations that are not easy to have, but a plan gives you some, somewhere to start right um, something to to be thinking about so i think it 's really important that we are honest as well. we do not sugarcoat. Oh, it's not going to happen in our community, or it's not going to happen to us, because it might, right? So, But that we respond accordingly with our plan. We take action. Action, again, super important, that we, we know what we're going to do. And we have conversations with all of our family members, our kids included, right? <laughs> so as far as, um, like, helping our kids to feel this, this free of shame about their culture, religion, and roots, now... Um, I'm a huge supporter, huge supporter for ethnic studies, for courses that reflect community, right? That teachings that teaching that's responsive to the community. So we need to we need to do more of that, you know, it, it, before this whole thing of immigration and, and this president that is there now. Before that, we need to have this conversation around how do we implement that more so kids see themselves in the curriculum, that we celebrate the diversity of our community, right? I think our schools can do that, and, and, um, and our, our you know I, my, my colleague Patrick over um, the school district is doing a lot of work around um, building um, responsive classrooms right now, to, to our culturally responsive classrooms, to, to our, um, our high schools in particular. So we need to do more of that. We need to train our teachers to really understand the community, um, better and to, to offer them, to offer kids curriculum that, that really celebrates them, right? Um, we can do that in our schools. So I think that's a, that's a big part um, of it. Is so that kids know where they come from. Um, so there's this, there's a saying that <laughs> when you when you see a tree, right? Um, it's those roots that keep it up, right? It's those roots that really help it to grow big. And if a tree doesn't have strong roots, what happens to it? It falls over right and when it falls over what's it do typically knocks down a tree next to it right so we need to build our roots and we can do that through curriculum i think
4: i had three simple things for for this question and it's you know we've talked about some of them and it's such things as providing a safe safe space uh providing an environment where local leaders are uh behind the immigrant community and all community uh but also, uh, my third point was by instituting such classes as ethnic study uh, courses in public educational system, that way we understand, uh, as my colleague here said, the diversity, uh, but also uh, the LGBTQ community and the different communities uh, that make NAPA. Um, so Uh, that's I think the best way to further support our children and not feel shame about their culture, who they are, where they come from where they'll be going.
1: Yeah, for me this is a question that really touches close to home. Um, I was born in Mexico and I was naturalized at a very early age but I was fortunate uh, fortunate enough to be able to also have studied in Mexico for for, uh, periods during my younger formative years. So I had this really interesting experience of being bicultural early and seeing positive and negative impacts, right? The negative impacts were being here in the US, I was treated as if I didn't belong because I was born in Mexico. But then being in Mexico, I was treated as if I didn't belong because I didn't speak perfect colloquial Spanish when I started and my family, for the most part, was over here in the US. So from this kind of initial destabilization this question was really central to me who are you? where do you come from? what are you? Right. Uh, as I've grown, as I've gone through my educational process and then working in the field of education as Alex absolutely pointed out we see things that are effective in the classroom we see these culturally relevant instructional practices that take the individual experience of that student and they say we're going to put it in context and once it's in context you're going to learn to rely on that as a foundation for your long-term success right um, there's a folklorical group as, as I had mentioned earlier that I started, that was started up here in Napa my uncle founded it and I worked really hard with him for the, the three four years when we were starting it up and even though I've separated from it all the kids When I see them, I still get such genuine joy from seeing them perform. Um, We've had one of our our young ladies was an AB 540 student, and she's now over at um, UC Irvine. We've had another girl ended up at SLO. We've had another one of our students ended up at UC Davis. Another one ended up over at UC Berkeley. And CSU Sacramento, SFSU. These students become successful. And the message that I would always drive home at every single practice was work hard. What we are learning here is a reflection of your cultural background. Okay, It's a piece of who you are. And you're going to get to share this with the community who doesn't know it. They don't know you this way. Your parents know this because it's what they grew up around. So by participating, you're not just honoring their experience and their memory. You are creating pride in that background they are seeing you become stronger so you feed their success in the same way that they're bringing you here and their energy devoted to what you're doing increases your success and then when we would hit the stage I would tell them backstage you're out here doing what you love and that is why people are here to see you they are here to see you because they want you believe in what you do and they share in that they share in that moment Um, so in a bigger picture for me everybody tries to kind of distill things down and there are three words that to me are key and understanding the difference between those three words is the foundation for all of those experiences I have realized as an adult now and it was these ideas of diversity multiculturalism and pluralism right what do those words mean to me Well, diversity is that richness that we have as cultures, thanks to our immigrants and our internal cultures. Everybody has culture. We all have our own unique little cultural backgrounds and subcultures that we draw from. The key is to recognize that diversity first and share those cultures. That's the multiculturalism aspect. Recognize what are all the bits and pieces that make you, you. Ask people about that. That fosters genuine conversation and then they ask you about it. And then the last piece is that pluralism. What I learned to do over the course of my lifetime was take those pieces of my identity and culture that were uniquely, distinctly, culturally Mexican and blend them with what I learned living here in this country with all the fantastic role models and examples I saw of how the concept of individual responsibility and success can feed the group. Your individual success becomes motivation and if you share the elements of your success that's the pluralistic aspect of it. So for me it's that big picture application, right? Diversity, Multiculturalism and pluralism. Once you understand what those mean, do you share them? Okay,
0: excuse me. Um, we're on to question number ten. Again, I'm going to remind everyone that there are comment cards outside. If you want to write a comment or question to any of the panelists, so we can answer that after this last question, um, which reads, "What is the emotional weight of being an immigrant?" And how do we, as community members, respond?
2: La pregunta es, ¿cuál es el impacto emocional de ser un inmigrante y cómo nosotros, como miembros de la comunidad, respondemos?
3: Great, great question. Um, and you know, when I did my my master's degree, I, I did it in, in, in social work and I looked, uh, especially in counseling, um, and. My research focused on looking at um, the impacts um, well actually themes of resiliency among migrant farm workers in napa and um, and what came up a lot in in that research, and I think it's it's, it's still very very relevant today is that um, whether you're documented or undocumented, right how you immigrate, how you get to this country will impact you um, in a big way right so if if you if you cross the border with a um, coyote or in some other ways there will be emotional impacts of that most often it's trauma right um, and then you come to a country and you're not accepted perhaps because of your status or you're being dehumanized because of these policies that adds even more trauma right <clears throat> now if if you came to this country and you and you are are you, know, you did it, you know. You got your, your your papers, and you are a resident or whatever it might be. Um, then, then perhaps you're not dealing with with how you got to this country, but you're still dealing with maybe some of the stigma of just being an immigrant. Which we got to be real. There, there, it, it, there's stigma out there. Right? Perhaps you don't know the language. Perhaps the, the culture is different. So there's adjusting, adjusting period. And I, I know this. I, I was born in this country, but a lot of the students that I worked with came here um, in their, when they were teenagers or younger, and they talked to me about what it was like to go through our schools not being able to speak English, perhaps, or being labeled, right? Um, and teachers viewing them as, as, as not being able to succeed, perhaps, because they weren't accustomed to the culture or the language or, or other stuff. So that that's just you know, the experience of an Im- immigrant. Add to that a person in the White House who is completely using, you know, this rhetoric of anti-immigrant um, to help fuel his his um, rise or whatever you want to call it. Um, there's a lot of stress, right? We've seen a spike in mental health <laughs> issues like anxiety, depression since, since the election. Um, as a counselor, I've literally worked a lot more on one-on-one with both documented and undocumented students. So I, I wanna be clear. This is not just an issue that's impacting um, undocumented students. On top of that, I also wanna add that it's not just impacting immigrants. We are in a space having a conversation right now, perhaps among allies or perhaps among supporters. This is impacting us as well. A lot of my colleagues, my close colleagues, um, who, like me, were born in this country, um, are also dealing with stress, with anxiety, um, because of these issues. So I want to be clear that this is having ripple effects throughout the community. Um, but I but I also think, I don't want to talk about it being such a bad thing, because I also think that this is, our resiliency has also surfaced, right? There are there's a lot of support out there. I think right now for our undocumented and documented um, community members and our immigrants, um, there's a lot of services coming together. There's a lot of I have activism happening right now, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so I think that we are we are rising to the occasion. Um, but <laughs> I would say that the the toll has been a heavy one um, for our community. And what can we do as community members to respond? Um, Continuing these kinds of conversations, right? Really inform yourself. I think we've we've given we've given a lot of different um, ingredients to, to kind of talk about these these, these uh, issues. Um, learn the facts, right? Learn the stories. Um, share those stories, right? Engage in conversation. Um, become active in your community, right? Um, engage with some of the movements that are happening right now. Some of the the resistance movements, which I think is a is a beautiful thing, that's all really important um, that we do that. <clears throat> At the same time, if you're a student, like I've been talking to, to my students who are who are dreamers, is um, don't give up. It's hard. It's hard for. I mean, it's easy for me to say, but but let's continue moving forward, right? Continue working towards getting those degrees. Continue having those dreams. Don't give that up, right? Because. Our people come from, from great people. You know, my, our ancestors have done great things, and, and we're, we're, that's our lineage. So they have that within them as well. So um, continuing to move forward, um, and, and we will get through this dark time. Um, there is a light at the end, so it's, it's it might be hard to see right now, and I'm speaking very much from a privileged place right now, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, but, but I know that, that uh, community coming together, that we will get through this.
4: With me, uh, you know, I, I I was born and raised here, and it was a little hard for me to to, to answer the, this question as, as well. Um, but uh, you know, I, I could speak to the sense of you know my my older brothers who first arrived, uh, you know, to the to this country, who felt lost. I mean, they were made fun of, uh, and through such taunts and trauma. Um, not saying that it's a good thing, you know, but they joined l- local gangs. Uh, you know, they wanted to feel accepted. They wanted to feel that sense of, uh, you know, uh, feeling like they are welcomed. Um, and you know, saw so these uh, consequences led to that. Um, and so, yes, it is very, you know, unfortunate that they, you know, they did such a thing. But uh, I, you know, I definitely could see where. They're coming from, Um, you know. And I, growing up, you know, my first language was Spanish, uh, but going through the school systems, uh, especially as I was starting to learn English, and didn't pronounce, you know. Still to this day, you know, I have a little slip up here and there, uh, you know, in English, and you know, still some people make fun of me, but. It's, you know, kind of just push it to a side now, but it's, you know, understanding from that trauma and how and that anger uh, and those emotions. And I think that's why I've been a big ally and a big advocate for immigration and for just in general humanity, because, uh, you know, it's it's placing that those emotions into advocacy, um, and so that's, that's something that we could continue doing and doing such things as know your rights, uh, and having forums like this, uh, connecting with your local elected officials. The fact that the mayor is here, that you got, y'all invited her, I mean, it's so great. And the fact that she was receptive and being here, um, is also great. So just continuing that advocacy, um, and, you know, providing, I think, those human rights, you know, of keeping families together um, and supporting those that, you know, maybe uh, they were separated. Um, but, you know, e- e- even in Napa, just, you know, uh, providing such uh, things um, like uh, housing, um, um, you know, equal pay as well, Um, that will all ultimately support um, you know, our our families in our communities if we want communities, we need to start thinking about communities
1: yeah, well for my part, I think that the the previous answer touched a little bit on this and and I addressed the topic uh, on a certain level, Um, you know, the asking it that way, what is the emotional weight of being an immigrant? Um, It's interesting for me because in one sense, having been born of American citizen parents and really calling this culture my home, I get to claim a little bit of ownership of the dominant culture, right? But having been raised in a foreign country and at one point uh, in my household, I spoke nothing but Spanish to my daughter for her first four years. So we would be places and people would talk to her in English and it's almost like she didn't know what they were saying. Now she shifted over to English. But I never lost ownership of that cultural background and upbringing. Um, And I think that's what creates part of that emotional weight of being an immigrant. You realize that you're carrying traditions that have been generations deep. And now you're coming into an environment where maybe your parents, if they are this first generation immigrant, they're saying, you know, be less like me. Be more like what you see around you. I don't want you to look or sound like me because it's going to identify you as part of the otherness of where we come from. And I don't want that to be the weight upon you. So I think I think all that ties and connects. When I was looking at this question, I remembered a story. Uh, I get a little emotional about it, so pardon me if I get a little verklempt. Alex knows I'm an emotional guy. We were visiting with my grandmother Jane Yoniko. Um, she comes from... Uh, A picture bride. Great-grandma was a picture bride. And I happened to marry into this beautiful, very culturally aware Japanese family with my wife. Well, when we were visiting with her up in Washington when our daughter was about two years old, we realized that grandma's not getting any younger, uh, and nobody had ever talked to her about what it was like to be in the internment camps. Grandma was pulled into the internment camp. She lost a home and two businesses. She had one child with her, and she had two children in the internment camp. This is an American-born citizen with constitutional protection. And because she looked different and we could identify her, we drafted up a document that said, we are taking that away from you. And I can tell you as a U.S. Marine, that pisses me off. And when we were talking to her, she absolutely broke my heart when she said, you know, they tell you you're born in this country and how great it is, and then they take it away from you with just the signing of a piece of paper, and you think, what's the point? I'm telling you, that was like a knife. And in that moment, I couldn't think of what to say. And she's gone now, and I'm, I'm, I'm wishing I had, at some point had been able to say I'm really sorry for that grandma, because I'm an American. And I carry that weight. Okay, That is part of my emotional weight, to know that my country that I was so firmly in belief of that I committed myself at that level, to know that that was part of my background. Just like it is to know that the Bracero program was part of my American background. And the repatriation campaigns prior to that was part of my background. But if I've been able to say, I'm, I'm sorry that happened, Grandma, and I'm going to honor what happened to you, by being a voice that will never let that happen in silence again. I will be part of this new culture. I will feed my child this information. I will make her aware of all these things that have happened before, good and bad, that are part of our larger scale culture. And we will make a better world through that little piece of knowledge and she will keep on feeding it. So for me, that's that's where that weight of being an immigrant comes from, right? That owning all of that even the stuff that wasn't necessarily mine to own, right? I need to be aware and I need to realize how we can do better than we did back then.
5: Good job. Um, you know, when I read the question, I, I think because it said emotional weight and uh, the feeling, I, I, I thought about people who are undocumented. And I can't imagine right now the feeling... Um, the weight of being undocumented and not knowing what lies ahead and what pathways are going to be open to you. And I think even folks, I don't, I can't imagine anybody in Napa doesn't know somebody who's undocumented. I mean, there are lots of folks here with lots of different situations, but um, it keeps them up late and we need to be sure that we're providing the services, so they can get the best advice and the best help uh, to move forward. And there's many nonprofits. I know Ricky works for one, but Puerto Sabriertas has done a great job of being, I think, on the front line and trying to ask questions and to be there uh, to provide services. And uh, one day they they put up a little link on their webpage and said, you know, let's do a GoFundMe. And um, they said, maybe we can raise $10,000. And so they sort of snuck it out there. And here's all the things we're doing. And when I checked it last night, they've raised $30,000 from the citizens of Nampa. And I think they're still going strong. And so um, there are things the community is willing to do and wants to do if they just know the pathway to providing that help. And um, I will say... Um, after the earthquake, this this amazing community came together, and neighbors helped neighbors, and uh, businesses, uh, you know, got up and running. And I heard of people that paid the salaries of their employees, even though they weren't working because the restaurant was closed. And we saw all this huge generosity. And what we're faced with right now is a different kind of a disaster, uh, but nonetheless one that that demands that our community come together again. So as we were Napa strong after the earthquake, we need to be Napa strong now with with some of these unknowns that are really affecting our community.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to move on to the comment section. Um, if you have any comment cards you can give them to Gabe right there and I think he actually has one right there. Just wanted to give a quick round of applause to the panelists for answering all those questions. Thank you guys so much. Okay thank you. the first one I think this one's. Um, Directed to Jill. Um, there's actually two. It's a two-parter. So how does ICE get involved if the county and city police don't work hand-in-hand with ICE? And then this is the second question. How, have we seen any cuts from federal government, from current administration, and if so, what city services have been affected?
5: yeah they're they're just wrestling over their budget right now, so we're not going to see anything um, uh, probably for for six months of the effects, but the effects of programs we've already heard that aren't going to be in the budget. They're not necessarily going to affect the day-to-day operation of the city, but it's the things like AmeriCorps and and those kinds of projects that have provided resources for our community that aren't going to be there anymore. So that's going to be difficult. Um, ICE, uh, you know, if if you get arrested, the police will arrest you. You'll go to jail. Um, Most of the um, interplay between ICE is inter interplaced with the sheriff over at the jail level and whether or not how to how to communicate with them and um, I can get you in touch with the police chief um, he's he's very clear if you ever ask him that he's not an ICE officer and he's not doing the work of ICE um, but if somebody comes here and has the warrant and has the legal backing um, they will if they're at the jail um, move
0: forward with the warrant Thank you. Move on to the next comment card. Following this in the media, for the most part, it has been conveyed that ICE only goes after undocumented people who have committed crimes or had jail time, etc. Is this incorrect or has it escalated to where now ICE is after everybody? to the point where children are scared that their parents have been picked up when they are late to picking them up from school. I think that's what they're referring to, one of the stories that was told. Um, anyone can answer that question if they if they want.
5: I will say I think they've had the warrants. I think it has been that, that higher-level um, f- person who has... Committed crimes and raises to the level. My concern is they're adding more and more ICE officers and, um, and also Border Patrol officers. And if they're adding more people to do this, there's gonna, you know, if they've arrested the really bad guys, what are they going to be doing? And so my concern is just by increasing that, that force, that they're going to, go and, and find people who um, have a college loan and haven't paid it back. I mean, there's some fears out there that the level of crime um, is not something that's violent. It can be much more innocent.
4: Yeah, and, uh, you know, from organizational kind of standpoint, what we've seen is that uh, the term criminal, uh, you know, has kind of expanded as well. Um, so, you know, we, we we know of people in the El Valley communities, one which, uh, you know, it's been by an unpaid ticket uh, that had been done several years or by domestic violence that had been done several, several years ago. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the things that uh, the administration is currently looking into that we're aware of. Um, and so uh, that we know that they're targeting, you know, just going to people, no. But, you know, a lot, I think with the story that I shared is because of a lot of the rhetoric that was out there during the presidential campaign uh, that sparked that fear uh, in, cho- you know, children are children uh, in, in their mind of not knowing, you know, who are they going to go after my parents? Are they going to go after me? So, you know, that's... Why I just referenced that.
3: One thing I'll I'll also add is that for students in particular, right? We know that currently um, DACA is not being touched. However, there's there's no guarantees that it won't. So one of the things that I spoke to a lawyer um, about this, um, and she told me that one of the most important things to advise students right now is that you really really do all you can to to obey the law, right? DUI tends to go up when you're in college, um, things like that. Little offenses that in the past maybe not would, would not affect DACA could, right? That could be used against you in the future. So really, really important to, um, to just um, be aware of that. <clears throat> Currently, nothing's happening, but, I, but we're not sh- clear if that's going to continue that way. So trying to, to make sure that um, you have a clean record, driving record, that kind of thing is, is, is critical.
1: Yeah, I would say tying into what Alex is saying, there, uh, there was a, an article in the news fairly recently about um, a DACA student who actually did get caught up into the mix. Now, this is somebody that did not have a criminal record, but it's somebody who was, from, from what I understood from the article, randomly stopped and deported. Now, when the student tried to come back into the country, the student was told, DACA says you can't leave the country, so you can't come back in. But he was deported. He didn't choose to leave. He was picked up and tossed across the border. And now he's being told, well, you had policy in place to protect you, but since you're on the other side of the border, you have to stay there because now what you did is illegal. This is not commonplace, but I would definitely say that for me this is a genuine concern. Um, Again, I had mentioned the Bracero program and the repatriation campaigns. And what you effectively saw in those cases was similar to what happened during... um, the roundup that we saw of the Japanese community, you had immigration trucks driving around, primarily in Southern California, and if you were brown, they picked you up and threw you across the border. Hundreds of American-born citizens were tossed across the border. And we know um, it's mainly from people being picked up for crimes of some kind, but we know that in current-day America, we end up seeing something like 86 American citizens who end up deported again, American-born, American driver's licenses thrown across the border because they get caught into this loop. So I definitely would agree with the concern that's being expressed in the card that there is the possibility to repeat those mistakes of the past because we've put policies in place that create that window. So for those of us who are here now who are allies in this fight, and there's a key word that Alex used, privilege, right? Right. We're in very privileged positions to not have to worry about that kind of thing because of folks like our mayor, our police chief, our sheriffs, who say we're not going to be a part of that machine. We care about our community first, and then we'll deal with policies. Those policies hurt our community. So as long as our communities keep that in mind, we as allies, agents of change, keep in mind those privileges that we have, And we use that voice as much possible. Yes, to comfort, but to keep on informing. Keep on pointing these things out. Simple things like Alex is saying. Keep a clean record. Hey, yeah, we all do foolish things when we're young, but now there's more impact. So you have to keep those kinds of things in mind. But for the rest of us, just be there as friends for everyone who is facing these challenges. right.
0: Our next uh, comment (coughs) says... I'm seeing that walking in par- parades and posting a photo or two on Facebook is the extent of support, a su- excuse me of support that a lot of people have for this problem. What do you guys feel is the next step or additional steps to more forward and protect an undocumented neighbor? Websites, organizations, etc. Anyone can answer that question. Go ahead, Ricky.
4: Uh, so uh, the Up Valley Family Centers is part of this collaborative with the Napa Valley Community Foundation, Puertas Abiertas, uh, International Institute of the Bay Area. Uh, we're always having workshops throughout, up and down the county, uh, where we're helping residents become citizens. Uh, and we always need volunteers to uh, support in these workshops. Um, so that's a great way to, you know, be doing something, Um, but also, you know, if things come up or even if they don't, voicing your opinion to your congressman, uh, giving them a call, going to city council meetings, voicing your opinions there. Correct me if I'm wrong, okay, uh, Mayor. Um, but, you know, just just sharing those concerns so uh, our elected officials know, you know, how the community is feeling. I remember when I interned for Congressman Mike Thompson's office, uh, we would get various calls, and we record those every day. Um, and the congressman takes that. I mean, he... That's what he listens to when he votes, uh, is the people that call in, that send in mail. So, those are all great ways to continue being advocates. Um, and, you know, there's, there's simple ways that you can, uh, be a part of that change. Um, you know, it's not scary. Maybe the first time it is you call, but, uh, you know, don't, don't be afraid. Take, take that leap. And if you want to volunteer as well for, you know, local causes such as helping, Folks become, uh, you know, citizens, or even in Know Your Rights workshops. Uh, please come talk to me after.
3: Um, I'd, I'd add to that um, all really good pieces of advice um, here at the college. Um, go to a board of trustees meeting, and, and you can do public comment there as well. The um, at our last board of trustees meeting, um, there was a, there was not a proclamation, but um, the college agreed to to really support all of its students. Um, in in ways that really aligns with kind of what other colleges have been doing and and, and Napa, <clears throat> the, the the city is doing so so we are we as a college have have really um, come on board that way too around supporting um, all all of our students. But go to those meetings, right? Learn about what's happening. Speak up at those meetings. As is, I think it's really important. Our board of trustees, our president, our our administrators, they will listen to you. Um, student voice on our campus is so so important, and you all have. Um, a lot of power, really. Um, Combine you get you get yourself together and, and you, you you create your clubs and your groups. You all can make influence on this on this campus. Um, I am a club advisor for our Dreamers Club here on on campus, along with Craig, um, and they're coming up there. They've just they're actually rekindling the the actual club here on campus. It was here a couple of years back, <laughs> but. Um, join that club, right? Come to that space, and, and um, they're actually putting on to, uh, a Dreamers conference happening, I believe, on May 6th. It's a Saturday, and you'll probably have more information about that um, will be be put out, but go to that, right? Learn more the specifics um, around some of these issues. And then little things that we can do, like on a daily basis, right? When you hear some of these stereotypes or these comments made about the immigrant communities, correct it, right? They take our jobs, they do this. And no, they don't, right? So um, learn learn the facts, right? Learn, learn the data. So say, no, actually, they don't do that. Um, and it's important for us to speak up, right? These conversations sometimes are not easy to have, but they need to be had, right? We can do things on the daily to, to, um, to be active. Talk to your kids about it. Talk to your parents about it, right? I, I, I constantly have conversations with my children about what's happening. I don't, I don't, i rather have conversation in my home then have them hear it somewhere else, and then get scared. So we we have those that conversation. I communicate that with them. My wife and I are very very. Um, we want that. We want that. We want them to feel that they can talk to us about anything, and, and especially what's going on in the world right now. So um, have those conversations. Um, talk about it, and um, and I think that's a huge. Those are huge contributions to the
1: movement. Yeah, there's a piece of that question that. You know, despite our new president's penchant for governing by tweet, uh, I'm not a fan of, you know, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram, those kinds of things for genuine political discourse and action. You end up with a lot of yahoo's and you end up with a lot of negativity, a lot of opinion, it which is tough because um, something I learned from uh, my cousin many, many years ago Opinions are neither right nor wrong. They simply are. Right? But your opinion is based on something. And that's what Alice was saying there. It's the facts. Have the facts. Have genuine discourse. Arm yourself with information. And as much as you might want to throttle somebody in a moment, resist that urge and really focus on the communication of that information. Um, I also like the idea of certain political voice aggregation tools that exist out there in the world. Now that's the IT guy in me talking. Um, I'm talking about organizations like moveon.org. People can go on and they can start some kind of uh, uh, petition for a particular action in support of a particular policy, and it starts to aggregate out to the rest of the world, and they collect those signatures. I believe we're very lucky here in California because we pretty resoundly said, no, we're not buying into this current rhetoric and we're not going to buy into a model of hate and divisiveness. We're really going to focus on what we've always done well, which is figure out how to collaborate. But in other portions of the country, the voices are different. These aggregators of political voice give you a chance to weigh in on those battles. So folks you know, in Minnesota or Pennsylvania or Idaho... There might be a strong community support for an action, but there's also a strong community against them. If their representatives now start hearing, well, you know, actually I have half a million signatures from across the country in support of what I'm talking about, maybe that'll help give them a better picture of, wow, so we're kind of split evenly here, but in the larger voice. This is what it really looks like. And that maybe can help sway opinion. Um, So as far as what else you can do, in person, get involved, absolutely, without question, right? But I do think there are some really good tools on the Internet and technology-wise that we can leverage to help us have impact. The
0: next comment card reads, A lot of emphasis is put on immigrants using resources such as welfare and other government-funded resources. How much do immigrants use these types of resources, and how does it compare to the amount of taxes that immigrants pay?
1: Yeah, again, 88-89, same argument. When you dig into the actual facts, I'm talking look at the Congressional Business Office, look at the IRS, look at the Pew Center for Research, look at the Center for Taxation and Research, all these nonprofit think tanks, grab the real numbers and look at them. At worst, and I'm talking when you are looking at folks that are very anti-immigrant, anti-their resource consumption, those folks, the most aggressive numbers they can come with are Kind of a wash. And when you look at the nonpartisan groups, how they interpret the data and when they explain it, in almost all cases, you end up seeing something like a 25 to 30 percent positive skew on the money brought in by the immigrant communities and the undocumented workers in a community versus the services that they take in. Now, one of the arguments that's always thrown out that frustrates me is they say, well, you know, they take up $10,000 per person in state resources. Well, that is a number that's actually taking from a larger calculation. And what they don't say is, you take $10,000 worth of state resources. They're talking about every man, woman, and child in the state will consume a certain number of resources. What we know from the numbers is that when you make it possible for undocumented immigrants to work, they will do so legally, and they will pay taxes equal to or higher Than what the average population takes in. And because they are afraid of getting caught, especially now, if they go to collect on Social Security, on food stamps, for God's sake, on basic medical care for their American born children, they are. We'd have to see what the numbers pan out in the next couple of years, but I would not be surprised to see if the skew doesn't get even higher, where they're putting not 20 to 25 percent, but 40 to 45 percent more than the quote unquote documented community because they're so reticent to use those services. So when people make those statements, they really are not grounded in fact. The hard part for us when we hear those comments, as Alex said, to counter that narrative is to be sure we know what those numbers look like and where to find them.
0: Did anyone else have a comment card that they wanted to share? Um, I know me and Eddie actually have questions so I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic to Eddie
2: so we all know that california is a very large state uh, full of diversity and lately there's been a large push for on our politicians to convert california into a sanctuary state Um, if this ends up going through what does this mean for our community as well as those that oppose this idea
5: well i think we're already on the list uh you know they came out with uh, trump came out with a list the other day of cities or maybe it was sessions who did and said these cities we think are sanctuary cities and and the rhetoric with it was, and quitting lawlessness and crime within their cities. And so it's sort of like, if you're doing this, you're harboring criminals. And one and one don't make two with with any of this math. But California was listed as, as a whole state. So my concern about Sanctuary City, and as we created the, trying to create the the language of, of what we do and we ended up with the language in the proclamation was I don't want people to feel that they're safe here and ICE can't get to them. And so I don't want to say Napa's a sanctuary city and lead them to believe that they're safer here and that than they would be in San Francisco and ICE can has authorization being the federal arm. Um So I, I, you know, there was just uh, uh, something on the news today. Somebody filed suit against the government because of their threat of taking money away from cities. That again, and I we just shared you that most cities aren't doing what federally qualifies you to be a sanctuary city, and in and in interrupting or um, fighting ICE. So. Um, it's an unknown time. It's a little crazy out there. Um, you know, I've, I somehow feel safer being in California. We're all of the same brethren, and so it's, um, it, it, it isn't individual cities. We're, we're all working, and our legislators are working with us.
4: Just really quick, and I had uh, – so during this, I mean, I, I was talking to a few of the panel members, you know things are changing, and they're changing very rapid from one day to the other. Um, and you know just a bit ago, as so of 40 minutes ago, uh, a judge blocks Trump's uh, effort to withhold money from sanctuary cities. Um, so this, and this from the New York Times, this uh, you know just occurred. So things are changing again. You know very continuously. This just happened. Um, so just wanted to mention that.
1: Yeah, we never know what's going to happen, but I always I've found it very, very encouraging that every single time one of these really just unreasoned, illogical initiatives come forward, the second it hits the Ninth District Court, somebody says, "Well, right here, clearly unconstitutional." No, you can't do that. We're going to fight that, you so-called judge. Well, not so-called. That is a judge. Based on the Constitution, you can't do it and then they come up with something else. So at the very least, our system and our process is working and highlighting all of these really erroneous statements, totally biased policies that are coming through.
0: Um, If no one else has a question, I have my, I actually have two questions. Um, So like I mentioned before, um, my parents are from Middle Eastern des- descent. They're from a country called Jordan. Um, and after 9 11 happened, I was very, very cautious because Arabic is my first language to ever speak it in front of anybody. Um, and still today, it still rings true to me. I mean, I'm st- I'm st- I still speak Arabic um, in public, but I kind of wanted to get some advice on people that. Who are Spanish speakers or Arabic speakers or speak any other language, kind of what what um, advice you'd give them? Because I was scared for a lot of my life to speak Arabic because I would get a lot of backlash on that, you know? And I kind of wanted just advice from some of the panelists. That was my first question. Um, I'll let you answer that and then I'll have my second question.
3: Yeah. Um, I guess for, for me, since I grew up speaking Spanish my whole life <clears throat> as well, I mean I can say luckily we live in Napa and um in this in this state um and, and basically you, you hear the language everywhere. <laughs> but, but what's one thing something that's really really important though, and I think in, the, in these times is we've been talking about you know being aware and, and offering emotional support. but I also think it's important for our, our, our communities, our immigrant communities our, 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 if you speak a different language, if you wear a hijab, whatever it might be that you actually are aware of your environment because violence has gone up, right? And it is your human right to defend yourself. I truly believe that. Now I'm not saying that you gotta go out and, you know, beat people up, but you need to be situ- situationally aware of your environment, of who's around you, of when you can um, remove yourself from a situation that can turn um, violent, um, to, and then if need be, there was literally a, a workshop we did that was yesterday on situ- situational <coughs> awareness around these political times and how to defend yourself or remove yourself from a situation. Um, I think this is, this is real talk. This is, this is where we are at now. Um, and, um, you know, Malcolm X used to say, by any means necessary. Now, again, i I'm, I'm definitely not here to advocate violence, but you do have the human right to defend yourself. Um, should you need to, um, and and to be quite honest with you, you know one of the things that um, I, I speak Spanish. I still speak Spanish. I never stopped speaking Spanish. Um, again, I I, I am in coming from a place of privilege, so it's not questioned um, or I, I, it doesn't come up for me. But but I'm very proud of that. It's been my foundation, so that hasn't changed um, at all, really. Um, so so I think the best advice I can give is just just really be aware if you think that something could um, cause you harm, right? That you take action on that. And, and I mean action by that first to remove yourself. Get away from there if you can. And if you have to um, deal with it, then, then learning some stuff that you can do to defend yourself, to be out of that situation, um, this is your human right.
1: I think that's a fantastic recommendation. Absolutely we need to be aware. Um, I'll give you a response on a different piece of that question. Um, I call Napa home, and my wife was raised in Calistoga her whole life. So she understands almost everything that is said in Spanish. Um, Deeply immersed in Mexican, specifically Mexican culture, because she has so many people in the area here that come from the part of Mexico that I come from. Um, And when we moved to Los Angeles, and we lived there for seven years we were suddenly dumped into this massive, multicultural... To me, it was a wonderland, right? Because because I always approach everything from that pluralism perspective, to me, the opportunity to be in a restaurant with a bunch of people who looked different than everybody I had ever grown up with, speaking a language I absolutely did not understand, completely unable to read the menu, and pointing at things and saying, I want that, and that, and that... Right, To me, that was an enriching experience because it was a chance to get my own little piece of living in that other piece of culture. Um, and I would say also that because I speak both languages as a native speaker would, having been educated in both countries, I found that when I was in areas with my wife speaking in English and I was with members of communities that are Spanish speaking because there's... Um, for any that, that aren't fully aware LA is the largest Spanish speaking community anywhere in the world outside of Mexico City so everywhere you go you're going to have people that, people that have that common base of language and when I would be in areas where we're speaking in English and then I would switch immediately y les hablo directamente en español preguntándole acerca de lo que vamos a hacer lo que vamos a comprar lo que vamos a comer that code switching quickly you would see their eyes light up right And what I believe, over the course of time, what I learned, I believe that it was empowering to them. I believe it was empowering to them to see somebody who distinctly looked like them, who spoke with a regional dialect so clearly, had that experience of being from that culture, and yet here he was, fully acculturated, and living in this world, and still honoring his background, still using that language, and owning that pluralism. So my advice to anybody who has that background, it's tough because it can be scary, right? And as Alex said, be aware of your environment. Know when it might be unsafe to tread in that direction. That's not giving up your identity. It's just being smart about the environment that you're in. But when you have those opportunities, I say engage. I say share. And when you're in those opportunities where I'm with folks who are primarily English speakers and I'm in an environment where the folks might be Spanish speakers, I will immediately engage them and they'll talk with them in English and I will talk with them in Spanish and what the folks eventually get oh, this isn't he's accommodating this is he's respecting he's choosing to do this because that is a core piece of his identity and that's awesome and then it's really cool when we're doing this in Spanish and then my wife says I'll have that too (laughs) Uh, did you want that with cheese? no, I don't want that with cheese and then we go, 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 go you know Those moments to me are precious. And those are the moments I want my daughter to see as somebody who is growing up in this extremely diverse, multicultural society. It is important to me to model that pluralism for her so she understands we are enriching your life through what we do. And when you move on and you make your choices down the road, you do the same. let that be a source of strength. That's what I would say.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, my second question actually is going to refer to um, refugees. Um, because I think a lot when you think of, especially in California, when you're thinking of immigration, it's coming from the south. Um, so we, we, we kind of, I personally do, when I think of immigration, I I'm thinking of Spanish speakers, people from Mexico, um, Costa Rica, you know, Puerto Rico, wherever um, in Latin America. I think we forget a lot about the people that are coming from the eastern side of the world. You know, from the Middle East, Africa, wherever else. Um, but specifically because of what's going on right now, that it's so close to my home, is um, the refugees that are are being displaced, and a lot of them are actually getting displaced to my country, Jordan, um, because a lot of because it's hard to come into America because there's a lot of you know walls being built up. Targeting refugees, and so I guess my question is for you, um, because I know people that have come here that are refugees. I know I know people that are trying to come here because they're trying to escape such hardships um, overseas. Is what 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 advice would you give to the people that aren't seeing this? People that are you know from here, born here, that don't really see the effects that are happening over there that I feel so deeply attached to. Um, I don't know if that was a good question or not, but. Go ahead and respond. It, 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 and, and I know it's a tough question, and I know because we were talking, we didn't really touch refugees, but refugees um, are immigrants too. And a lot of the times, refugees, they do not want to be displaced from their homes. A lot of the times, immigrants don't want to be displaced from their homes because that's where they were born, that's where they live, that's all they know about. But if there's turmoil, that's happening in a country. And they have to move somewhere that's safe. And America is, you know, the most safest country on, on the planet, you know, supposedly. And so they want to come here and find a shelter and a home and people open with arms. And when, when you have a whole country that's seeming that they're just closing off, to, you know, to you and they just don't want you in here and they're thinking that you're bad and you're going to terrorize the country and whatever it is, what what can you tell people that are either in the hatred, people that, you know, want to help but don't know how to help, and for the people that are in the situation that they are right now, that, that they want to be refugees, they want to come over and start a better life for themselves?
4: Yes, good question. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, I think when we talk about immigration, a lot of, you know, people kind of resort to what's oh, people from down south. Um, you know, but it's it's more than that. Actually, I was listening to NPR this morning, and they're saying that uh, Mexicans no longer are the majority of undocumented people. Uh, you know, uh, and of immigrants in general, uh, it's you know people from A- Asian countries and um, Central America uh, are coming. You know, and so Middle East as well. You know, and so I think I think that. You know, when we give a human face uh, to what's happening uh, out in the Middle East um, and, you know, provide those stories again, uh, give it that humanity, um, you know, I wish we were taking more people in here in the U.S., Right now, I'm looking towards uh, President Trudeau, or I can't pronounce his name, from Canada. I wish he was our president, Uh, or, you know, Ms. Merkel from Germany, um, you know, where they're taking in more refugees. I mean, there's just so much need that's happening um, that, you know, uh, but, you know, I guess getting to the question, it's, you know, providing that human face that... Uh, those stories of what is happening there, um, how do we get that out there you know it's it's uh, th- that that 's tough uh, but you know having those dialogues, having i think you know even dialogues like these about uh what you know what 's happening it 's really important and key so our community um, understands what 's going on uh, so
5: I had somebody last year come up to me and say, I'm really upset about what's happening in Syria, and I think we ought to um, be open to having some folks um, come to town. And um, I said, great, you know, form your group. Um, They're going to need a huge support system. Um, You're going to need to put all those pieces together so if you want to sponsor people that we've got the services for them to do it. So it really takes somebody with heart, that really wants to provide that service so that when people come over, they've got a, a, a lot of success. And I, at this point, we know that that isn't even possible from certain countries.
3: And I would just add um, that... You know, you bring up a really, really important point. We've been talking about immigration, but we've we've been talking about, you know, there's there's different types of immigration. There's forced immigration, right, which is what you're talking about, and then there's there's unforced immigration where people, you know, then we can argue that it's forced because of what's going on in the country as far as economics, but because of wars and because of this kind of thing, political reasons, it's it's a different um, kind of immigration. Um, I'd also say that. You, you bring a lot of um, a lot of heart with that question. So so I would identify you perhaps as taking on some leadership around bringing this up more, right? So I mean I'm an educator, so I always look at my students as like how can we learn from all of you, right? And you have a lot to offer, right? So I would challenge you to continue that conversation, to continue that dialogue. It's a great question, right? Um, and and we can learn from you, right? Um, we're here to speak about immigration, in particular, maybe more around the experience of, of perhaps Latino communities because I can speak from that perspective, but you're speaking from a different perspective and it's still a really, really important um, voice that we need, we need to hear. So continue asking that question, but then I'd push you to start taking some action yourself, right, and creating spaces where we can have more dialogue around the refugee experience, which I think is, is not spoken about as much.
1: You know, I would add on to that, uh, my brother lives in Frisco, Texas, And he married a young woman named Anju, who was born in India, and then their family immigrated over here. I did not realize that some parts of Texas, specifically Houston, um, has tremendous immigrant populations. The Indian population in Houston, um, there's a chef author, his name is Anthony Bourdain, and he has a series of shows. And in them he goes to different areas and he experiences the culture, talks about the food. I mean, it's mainly about the food, right? But then he really looks at the environments and the cultures and and he has realizations and he communicates those to you. So I did not know that Houston had an Indian population of somewhere around 150, 200,000. And they are... um, one of the countries in the U.S. that has accepted a very large number of refugees from northern Africa. And they are establishing extremely vibrant, successful communities. They're doing open-air urban gardens where they can come in and they can use their skills and grow food for themselves first. And then as it increases, they start selling it to local vendors. And this is premium or organic product. So they're becoming entrepreneurs and they're selling and feeding the economy in the area. refugee question is just so challenging because I think it lives outside of most of our experiences. We know immigration within our own cultural groups, but when you start dealing with folks that are refugees, not only are they facing the challenges of an immigrant, but they're facing the challenges of somebody who's been physically abused, who's been emotionally abused, who maybe has been in prison, who maybe grew up without education, right? So they've got all these peripheral social issues that kick in. Um, and I think a lot of us just don't know the models that work. So maybe the suggestion would be exactly what Alex is saying. Look to these communities where they're making it work and break down the bits and pieces and then bring that back and share it with everyone. You know, And all of us can do the same thing. Learn, learn about one community that found success and know the two or three pieces that made them work and allowed them to coexist within this new culture and how they're growing. And the more of us have those examples, the stronger that information base becomes and the better we support each other.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of what it boils down to is that immigration, citizenship, countries even, are all a um, man-made construct. And it's... That's not tangible, you know. You know, you might have a piece of paper that, are like, yeah, you're a country. Here's a Declaration of Independence. Go ahead and, you know, live, create a government. But when you're thinking about it, everyone was put on this earth, you know, not to, you know, to assimilate and and be have cultures and all this stuff. But we're still all human. And I think what a lot of What you guys touched on tonight was that we need to stop dehumanizing people and seeing immigrants or refugees or whoever as something other than a human because we're all humans and we all need to respect each other and care for each other. Um, So thank you so much. I want to make sure you guys get another big round of applause from the audience. Really appreciate you coming out tonight. Um, Please be on the lookout for more Fireside Chats. Um, and I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Thank Eddie and thank all the panelists again. Um, and also Taylor Giama. she is, I don't know where she went, but <laughs> Taylor is one of the big driving forces of the Fireside Chat series here, so I want to give her a round of applause too for all our hard work and efforts. Hey. Oh yeah, and the panelists, you guys have some goodie bags over there. Um, I think there's still refreshments outside, so go ahead and help yourselves and thank you again.